grab a seat and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we're picking up once again um, in our 1 Peter series of looking at what does it look like to thrive while in exile. And today's passage is, I think it's a hard one for a lot of us to swallow. Because I think for many of us, when we hear words like submission or be subject to, uh, we kind of automatically start to cringe a little bit. For many of us, it kind of feels like a curse word. We have an aversion to authority. You see, we, we know that authority is a must in our lives, and yet so often we struggle to accept these authorities in our lives. We all struggle with submission to a point. And why is that? Why do we not want to submit? And I think really at the core of our being, there's this struggle. I think there's a number of reasons. I think for a lot of us, it's simply that we don't want to be told what to do. We believe we know better than that individual or whatever that authority may be in our life. We're like, oh, well, we'll carve out our own path. You see, our desire to be in control and our desire to be right kind of dictates the path in which we take and whether we accept authority or not. Or for others, we, we don't submit because we actually believe that their thought process or the authority and power just makes no sense. We, we think that we're being asked to do something that is just ridiculous or, or counter to what I think I should do. So we don't submit because we don't believe in the cause. We don't believe in the mindset in which they're trying to instill to us. Yet the more I've thought about submission this week, the more I've had to wrestle with it in my own life, because me, like you, I'm sure struggle with submission. I've come to realize, I think for a lot of us, this struggle actually stems from just not having a good reason to submit. You see, we struggle to submit because we don't actually see the benefits of that submission. But in our text today, Peter actually clearly emphasizes that the believer needs to submit, but I think actually shows us a glorious and powerful reason why we are to submit. A reason that trumps all other reasons why we would not. You see, in today's text, we're going to see that Peter ultimately calls the Christian to submit, even in suffering, for we follow the way of the suffering servant. See, Paul has kind of one, Peter has one kind of continuous exhortation throughout this text that kind of builds upon each other. And we see it climax in verses 21 through 25. And so we're going to kind of follow his, his train of thought, his flow, as we get to that climax. As you'll see on the screen, this is kind of how the text unfolds. First, he says, submit for God's will, verses 13 through 17. Then submit for God's grace in 18 through 20. And then lastly, this climax of submit for God's son, verses 21 through 25. 
So we see him start by saying, as a Christian, submit for it is God's will. Let's pick up in verse 13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. It's important to note, okay, who is, who is Peter writing to? Who is his original context? <coughs> He's primarily writing to Gentile Christians that have been dispersed, that are living, as he says in chapter 1, in exile in like five or six different regions, which is modern-day Turkey. And they're living under Roman-occupied territory. And based on when this letter is written, we can, we can know that it's either in the reign of Claudius or in the reign of Nero. And so he's writing to a people that, that understands what it means to be persecuted. In history, Claudius actually was the one that ostracized the Jews and kicked all of them out of Rome. He said, you're too much of an issue here, so just get out of my city. And he's known as really one of the first ones to start persecuting Christians. Well, for many of us, we probably are familiar with Nero. He's responsible for some of the most extreme Christian persecution that we know today. He was literally known to take Christians, dip them in oil, and light them on fire just so that he could have lamps during his dinner parties. And it's in the midst of this that Paul is writing and telling them, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So, so what is he saying? He's saying that, okay, whether it's Claudius or Nero or whether it's the governors that have been put under their control, as Christians, we are to subject ourselves even to these pagan authorities. And why is that? He says it's for the Lord's sake. And for the Lord's sake actually implies this idea that obedience actually serves God's purposes. This echoes the words of Paul in Romans 13 where he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. He's ultimately saying we are to submit because God has actually been the one that's allowed them to be in the position that they are in. He calls the Christians to submit to the government at play where they live. Yet he recognizes the temptation that, that can be construed to their loyalty for Christ as a license to freely and willingly rebel against ungodly authorities that govern them. Yet he, he refuses that idea. He says, do not use this freedom in Christ to just completely reject the government. But he says, still, subject yourself in the midst of it. He's ultimately calling them to be law-abiding citizens, which in today's age, that I think makes sense for us as Christians to realize, yeah, we should be ones that obey the governing laws. Yet in that day and age, there was, there was a strife 
And there was a desire for rebellion. And so he's saying, hey, mellow out and obey the laws that have been set in place. He's saying, strive to do what is right and thus strengthen the social fabric at play. And why? Why is that? Why is there this call? He says that by doing that, we align ourselves to the will of God. And what is the will of God? He says it is doing good that we can silence the ignorance of foolish people. You see, according to Peter, he's saying that by doing good, we actually minimize these slanderous attacks against us. He's saying, hey, it becomes, it becomes more challenging to criticize a Christian when they're continually doing good and honoring those around them. I mean, think about it in your own life. You might not necessarily love an individual, but if that person is known to always honor and respect those around you, it's really hard to actually judge and ridicule an individual like that. If anything, so often we, we might judge that person because part of us wishes we could be as honorable and respectful as the individual. You see, he's, he's calling us to live in such a way that, that those in authority see that our works are good. So the question is, are we living as a benefit to the society around us? Or are we living as a hindrance? Does the world around us even see that the life of a Christian is one that, that actually does good works? Or are we known for, for nothing? Do we just kind of hide in the background of society? Yet he also kind of shows us, okay, how, how do we go about this? How do we go about doing good works in our society? How do we go about submitting? And it's, it's ironic because he says, you live as people who are free. And it's through your freedom that you've actually become a servant to God. You've actually become a servant to God in the midst of being free. Therefore, he says, believers do not enjoy this unrestricted freedom, but rather true freedom is exercised under the authority of God. Again, Paul in Romans 6 do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Or as Karen Joby says, the Christian life is a free servitude and a serving freedom. You see, Peter ends this section by kind of giving us four imperatives of saying, okay, how do we live as free yet servants to God? He says we honor everyone, we love the brotherhood, we fear God, and then to kind of close it all off, we honor the emperor. So to honor everyone means that we're treating everyone with the dignity and respect that they deserve. 
the reality is every person we pass on the street each day on campus, the CEO and the homeless is all made in the image of God. Go back to Genesis 1 and see that image projected. So we ought to treat everyone as an image bearer of God. And he says we also are to love the brotherhood, a significance of a calling of that of Christians, those that we link arms with, those that are brothers and sisters in Christ. That priority is is to love, to love as Christ showed us what love looks like. You are to love one another as cherished family members. And he calls us to fear God. And again, this is in contrast to honor the emperor. Fear God and honor the emperor. It's magnified in the call to fear. But again, it's, it's this rationalization that it's not a fear that makes you run from God, but it's a fear that actually brings you to the foot of the cross. It brings you to God. As Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And lastly, he, he, he brings this section to a close by calling us to honor the emperor. He's saying, in case, in your mind, the emperor doesn't fit in the everyone category, I'm just going to remind you, <coughs> honor and respect him, even though you're ultimately a citizen of heaven, even though ultimately you're free, we're still called to honor the governing powers in play. Yet it's important to note what, Paul is, what Peter is not saying. Peter is not saying that you ultimately just blindly follow these human institutions off a cliff into total depravity. You see, Peter's actually telling us to obey the government because obeying the government reveals that, that Jesus, that the Lord is actually our supreme authority. And we obey ultimately because Christ has called us to obey. You see, the ultimate authority is not government, is not president, but it's the Lord. And so therefore, this, this call to submit does come with exceptions. Because if God is our ultimate authority, not human institutions, then there comes a point where we say, well, I'm going to follow the will of the Lord, even if it leads to suffering, because the will of the Lord and, and his calling on my life is greater than the government at play, because God reigns supreme. Theologian Tom Schreiner puts it this way. Peter gave a command that represents a general truth. That is, he specified what Christians should do in most situations when confronting governing authorities. Believers should be inclined to obey and submit to rulers. We will see, however, that the authority of rulers is not absolute. They do not infringe upon God's lordship and hence should be obeyed if they command Christians or should be disobeyed if they command Christians to contravene God's will. I mean, we see in the very next chapter that Peter calls the believers in 3.17. He says, it is better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will than for doing evil. 
So God obviously takes and he says, my will is more important than that of the government. But by no means do we just take that and subject it to say, well, then I just can do away with obeying any authority in my life because God is my authority. He says there will come a time and a moment when you disagree. But for the most part, the life of the Christian is to one to willfully obey and submit. Submission has its limits, but our primary submission rests first and foremost in honoring the Lord. You see, in this first section, Peter's speaking to kind of Christians as a whole. And then he starts to kind of narrow in (coughs) a section that's titled the household codes as he looks at the life of a servant. Or also translated in some of your Bibles probably as a slave a marginalized and most vulnerable people in the Greco-Roman world. And in this section, he calls us to submit for God's grace. Verses 18 through 20. It says, Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only doing good, I mean, not only to do good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows, while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So again, who is Paul, who is Peter writing to? He's writing to household servants and slaves. You see, slavery was actually really common in the Greco-Roman world. Pretty much if you were a well-to-do family, you would have many slaves. And it's estimated that actually one-fourth of the entire Roman Empire was made up of slaves. And slaves were typically men or women that were captured in war, or they were actually kidnapped, born into a household, a household of slaves, or in many cases had to sell themselves into slavery because they were in a debt that they could not get out of. And their lifestyle and living conditions greatly varied. You had slaves that would work in the mines, and it was really hard, grueling, back-breaking work. Yet there were also many slaves who served as doctors and teachers, managers, musicians, and artisans. So it's hard for us to understand what a slave would actually look like in today's context because the reality is many of the degrees in which we're pursuing as students at Oregon State or have could still end up being a slave in this context. Not only that, slaves could actually own other slaves. And it was not uncommon for a slave to be more educated than his master. And so we see this unique picture of slaves that cover a wide gamut of what is our culture even today. And yet at the end of the day, slaves had no independent existence. They had no legal rights and were often treated harshly. It was actually understood that as as a Roman citizen, it was kind of your duty and your job to treat your slaves harshly. Seneca, who's a Roman Stoic philosopher, that actually wrote during this time period. Um, He often criticized the Romans as being excessively haughty, cruel, and insulting towards their slaves. 
He said we should view them as, as fully human and be treated as friends instead of just as brute force or a means to an end. And so Paul's writing to, to these outcast, ostracized people owned by another. And he says, submit to and respect your earthly master. Like wh- whether they're good and gentle or whether they're actually unjust and harsh and beat you. He calls them to submission. Yet he says in, in these moments, it's actually a gracious thing when followers of Christ suffer unjustly. When he, as he says, they have, they are mindful of God. Which that mindful of God emphasizes that in these moments they are suffering because of their relationship with God. Because of who they are in Christ. You see, he emphasizes the Christian call to do good, even in the midst of trying and difficult circumstances. Because it's in this, this doing good, in the midst of suffering, that he says we actually get to experience God's grace. And Peter also wants to make it clear that if you're suffering for, for your sins, for your wrongdoing, he's like, what merit is that? What benefit is that? You, you, des- you deserve wrath for sins, yet for the good, you're experiencing the grace of God. Ultimately, he's pulling back from verse 17 and saying, hey, the honor everyone actually means even honor y- your cruel master. And that begs the question, why is unjust suffering a gracious thing. If Peter says that for, for willingly suffering for Christ's sake, you actually get reminded, be reminded of who you are in Christ. And you actually get to be reminded of what he has done for you. Peter's drawing our attention back to the gracious things that he's already kind of walked us through in the letter. <coughs> Just look back to chapter 1, verse 3 three through 5. He talks about being born again to a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, <coughs> and an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you by God's grace. In verse 7, he says it's a tried and true faith, that actually this tried and true faith results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's actually saying it is a gracious thing for unjust suffering because it makes us like Christ. And it proves our confidence in him. In regards to these verses, um, and a great expositor of, of scripture, Edmund Clowney says, but if he bears the evil patiently, he has broken the chains of bondage in the power of the Lord. He shows confidence in God's justice. He need not avenge himself. He also shows that his service is not merely forced, but voluntary. He is willing to serve his master for the Lord's sake, even to honor him for the Lord's sake, 
His master cannot enslave him, for he is Christ's slave. He cannot humiliate him, for he has humbled himself in willing subjection. Peter's ultimately saying, you experience Christ in new and profound ways. When you suffer willfully and willingly for him. And God is faithful to bestow his grace on you in those moments. And yet again, it's important to note what Peter is not saying. It's important to note that when Peter speaks of of slaves, he has no understanding of, of the American slave trade and what we often think of with slaves. And so we have to realize the context is very different in which he is speaking. It's also important to note that that Peter is not commending slavery in this situation. He's not saying, hey, this is a great reality and let's rejoice in it. But rather, he's calling the Christians to say, in the midst of this current situation, in the midst of the current social structure, a man-made, fallen social structure, this is how we are to act. And he's saying, you can actually use really cruddy man-made situations to experience God and to bring glory to his name. And yet, once again, we see just a reiteration of submitting to one's master only goes so far. Because a Christian slave's truest identity is a beloved servant of God who's actually free in Christ yet willingly submits to Christ and therefore submits to those that Christ calls us to submit to. Yet if a slave is commanded to perform an act that violates God's will, Peter says, don't. Willingly suffer in those moments. Think of it this way. Imagine that you're a secretary of a corrupt businessman. And as a secretary, you can't refuse to write a letter for the manager just because he's a corrupt man. You can't be like, I'm just not going to do my job because you're a bad guy. You see, the, the, the only defensible reason in which you would be like, I'm not going to write a letter for you, <coughs> is if the very content of the letter itself is evil and goes against God, goes against his will. And that's what he's having these people wrestle through. As he's saying, if it, if it confronts God's will, then you can refute that. But otherwise, honor those around you. Respect those around you and, and do the job that you've been destined to do. See, Peter's exhortation and argument just continues to build. It says, submit to government authorities for it's God's will. And Slaves and servants, actually submit to your masters because through it you experience God's grace. Yet if you're struggling with this call to submit, Peter actually climaxes in this last section by telling believers, hey, submit for God's son. In verse 21 he says, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. 
Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree <coughs> that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were, like straying, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, this is kind of the mic drop of the section as he climaxes. and says, if you're still asking that question of, of why submit, we've been called to as Christians. We have been chosen by God and elected to suffer. See, Peter spent the first few chapters kind of showing us what this heavenly calling is. He also very much wants us to know what our earthly realities will be like. We will suffer. We will experience unjust abuse. And we're called to patiently endure while being beaten or abused for doing good. You see, a life of suffering is our calling, not our fate. It is our calling because it was Christ's calling. Suffering is not a detour or a wrong turn on our way to receiving our inheritance. It's actually the straight and narrow road that we've been called to. And so according to the road we are on, we can suffer willingly because Christ suffered. And the heavy reality is not only did Christ suffer, but Christ suffered for you. Like, let that sink in. Christ suffered for you. The perfect one, the Son of God, suffered for us. The one who never sinned and never lied, suffered. When insulted and abused, he opened not his mouth. So as Christians, really as many Christs, we might follow the example of Christ. I mean, Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, let's just think about the last moments, the last day of Jesus' life and the suffering that he endured for you and for me. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas Iscariot, the kiss of death. His other closest friends and followers abandoned him. <coughs> Peter, the author of this letter, abandoned and really denied Jesus three times that very night, his closest friends. He was judged and found guilty in an illegal and unfair trial. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, literally absolved himself of the situation and washed his hands clean, knowing that a free man was being found guilty. Barabbas, a murderous insurrectionist, was released 
instead of the perfect Son of God as the Jews yelled out, crucify him. He was handed over to be beaten and mocked and willingly was pierced and crucified as a cursed blasphemer between two thieves. That's what Christ subjected himself to, willingly for you and for me. And, and, and Peter really shows us two reasons why Christ so willingly did that. The first we see is that he trusted the just judge. You see, Christ endured and calls us to endure because we, like Christ, follow the just judge. We follow God who says in Deuteronomy that vengeance will be mine. I will repay. He was confident that God would make all things right and that justice would win the day. And so he willingly stepped under the submission of the just judge, saying, I am yours, and I will follow your will. And secondly, Christ suffered for us. He suffered that we may be made alive. See, Jesus is, is far more than simply an example. He is our sin bearer. <clears throat> and he did something that we could never do. He was and is the only one who ever paid the perfect price to bring the dead to life. And this whole section is saturated with the language of Isaiah 53 that speaks of the suffering servant who would come to wipe our transgressions away to make us right with God. Christ suffered and died so that we could die to sin and be made alive to righteousness. The wounds of Christ, his blood spilled, has made us clean. We have been healed completely and the destruction of sin no longer has a hold on our life. See, we are no longer slaves to sin but are made alive in Christ. And through that now become slaves to righteousness. <coughs> and ultimately this section is showing us what does it look like to live as a slave to righteousness on this earth. And so, so the question is, what, what does this mean for us today? How do we take a heavy text on submission and walk through those doors into this world? And first, we need to ask the question of how should we as believers respond to the social structures at play? What is our relationship to be with human and government institutions? As our text says, honor the government. Honor the president. <coughs> and Peter's not saying that we have to agree with the government or with the president but we are called to honor him, to respect him. And for some of us, it's probably a lot harder to do 
than others. Yet remember that in honoring the government of not speaking ill of it, we actually do good in being a witness for Christ to those around us. As he says, to silence foolish ignorance. So can we say that that's true of us? Or do we often fall into the foolish people category ourselves? See, he calls us to submit to these authorities. And this is because of our relationship with God. I mean, what if we were known as a people that just were, were positive in honor and respect to the authorities in our life? I guarantee how people would talk with us and view us would, would radically change. S- some for the negative that would lead to suffering, but some for a positive. To see that there is something actually different about us. Because if we realize that, that, that our heaven is our home, it radically changes how we live in the here and now and embrace the realities of the current. See, it's, it's a call to, to respect the authority. So let's strive to be men and women that actually do that. That strive to be silent when everything in us wants to just ridicule and blame and make fun of. But rather strive to be the person that shows respect and honor and says positive things about the authorities in our life. See, I think this also stems to a second question of what do we put our hope in? What do we put our hope in? Because the reality is if we willingly sin against earthly authorities, we're kind of saying that we've placed our hope in the world. We've placed our hope in these worldly authorities, and so we've, we've pulled ourselves away from our true identity. When the reality is, again, we are exiles, sojourners and strangers, just wandering, (coughs) desiring to be called home to heaven. I mean, we need to remember the verses that came before this, that we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are a people set apart for God. And if we embrace that identity, then we can flee from these desires for a luster of importance, flee from these desires of making a name for myself or ridiculing others, (coughs) and instead look to the hope that comes through Christ and Christ alone. The reality is what's going on in the world around us and who has authority in my life starts to really diminish in value as I realize that Christ the maker of heaven and earth who will call me home is actually the supreme authority. And lastly, the the call is to follow the way of the suffering servant, to follow the way of Christ. So we, like Christ, cling to the fact that we are following the only just judge. And knowing this frees us up to endure a lot on this earth. God is judge and will justly judge this world. 
Therefore, I don't have to go around acting like judge, jury, and executioner. Because I know that the just judge again said, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. We know justice will come. Might not come today, but tomorrow, for some of us, it won't even come in our lifetime. But yet we know there is a day that's coming when all peoples will be judged. And so through this passage, we can free ourselves to not take on that role in our own life, but to turn to God and to praise him for that role in his being. And then lastly, we cling to the reality that Christ is our shepherd and overseer. And the here and now, we cling to the fact that Christ is the one that took us as dumb sheep and brought us into the fold. We wander away, and yet Christ comes and searches after us and brings us to himself. He cares for our soul. <coughs> this overseer language is the same language that's used to speak of that of, of a pastor, of an elder of the church. Jesus is ultimately saying he's the pastor of our life that cares for our souls. Oh, this is a beautiful image of love and affection and care that Christ has toward us. See, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of submission, Christ is by your side. He's with you through it all. And if we cling to that, we can get through anything. Because Christ is our pastor and God is the just judge. See, Peter emphasizes the reality of what it means to be the people of God in a broken and corrupt world. The life of a Christian is the life of a sufferer. And yet we can rejoice in our suffering because we join the way of Christ, the suffering servant. And I thought it'd be fitting to, to finish our time by, by praising Jesus for who he is and what he's done by actually reading Isaiah 53 to saturate ourselves in the words of the suffering servant who came to give us life. Join me as we read Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. <coughs> Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his, this generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of God to crush him. He was put to grief. 
And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray.